Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Jeff Buck. Hey, yes, turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 5, Psalm 5, for a message that I call Take Cover. Take Cover. You know, um, if you've ever lived in the Midwest like I did for 12 years, you're familiar with tornadoes. And you don't get a lot of notice that they're coming, but once you hear the alert, you are supposed to do one thing, take cover. It's your responsibility to find cover. Then if you live, as I did it 22 years in South Florida, you get used to hurricanes. And so I've been through uh, 1992, Hurricane Andrew was headed straight toward the Dade-Broward line near where I lived and uh, dipped south at the last minute and destroyed 20 square miles of Dade County. And I drove down there, and I mean, there was just nothing. You couldn't tell where you were because the street signs were gone and there's no mountains to navigate by. And uh, for days, you hear about the cone, the infamous projection path cone. And you, you watch where that thing is going and you measure every day, did it turn a little bit? Is it gonna come my direction? And so they'll say, now today would be a good day to get your plywood, get your boards, get your water and all that. And then day two, day one. And finally comes the moment when they say these words, you should already be in a shelter. If not, take cover. Now, we have physical storms in life. And we also have another kind of storm, lots of kinds of storms where separation or divorce or illness, sickness, confusion come. And those are a great time to go to the Psalms. The Psalms are where we hear people at the raw lowest talk about, talk about God. And Psalm 5 is, is a great example of David teaching people out of the storms and the battles in his own life about how to find shelter in God. It's a lot better than the Mick Jagger, give me shelter from the 60s. And so I'm gonna tell you how this Psalm kind of uh, shakes out. We don't have the uh, screen here, but the first three verses, I would say it's telling us to bring everything to God early, early in the day. Bring it to God early. So important to learn to bring your burdens, your fears, your anxieties, to bring them to God early. Number two, verses four, five, and six. Bring it all to God with reality. Really, really, really talk to God about specifically what's going on. More about that in a minute. Then a third section, verses 7 and 8. Bring it all to God with confidence and expectation. Prayer is a very different experience when you expect God to answer it. 
is really different when you expect God, when you call him to say hello. And that's what David is teaching. Bring it to God early with reality, confidence, expectation. Then the fourth section, nine and 10, bring it to God with perspective. You're going to see that David doubles back in four through six and nine to 10 on how perplexed he is about the wickedness around him. And he's trying to work his way to an understanding and a perspective and a faith to deal with that. And then finally, 11 and 12, which is where we want to get. Two words, take cover. Once you've processed these things in these first four things, first four sections, then it's time to take cover. Now, I'm always happy, Pastor Nate, who's on vacation up in Tahoe, as you know, uh, assigns me something, and this uh, was a fun assignment, Psalm 5. And I always, when I look at a psalm, I look at the top, and whatever title might be there, and superscript, you know, instructions, and, and who wrote it. And I'm always happy when I see a psalms from David, because David is my guy. He is gutsy, he's strong, sometimes impulsive. He is a lover of God. He's so, uh, the common uh, pronoun you see in Davidic Psalms is the word you. He doesn't just say God is or he is. He says you are. And you really want to listen to a guy who knows God. There's an old saying, a man who has an experience is never at the mercy of a man who has a theory. And that's David. David had experience with God. And it's interesting, too, it says here, to the choir master. So remember, this is song. This is something that a choir is meant to actually sing. How I would love to have heard how it sounded. And notice, too, this is very unusual. It says, for the flutes. For the flutes. So as David pictures this, He pictures the flutes playing along. Flutes are contemplative, uh, melancholy, sensitive. And so we kind of get a feel for what this psalm may have sounded like when it was actually sung. It's a wonderful, wonderful lesson on taking cover with God. Let me read it. Please follow along. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. That word can also mean expect. Then he talks about the wicked. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Uh, David uh, loved to help God very often with judgment. And so I know, God, you just hate everybody who's an evildoer. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So that aside about the wicked. And then he says in verse 7, But I, but I, now he's turning the corner back to that vertical thing with God. But I, 
through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That's where David always wanted to be. You notice that. The temple, the tabernacle, wherever God was, that's where David wanted to be. He hungered and thirsted to be with God. I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Here's, here's David who feared nothing except his God. And then verse 8, what a great prayer. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. And then he doubles back again on the wicked because he's trying to get the perspective here and to get his mind right about the situation he's facing and the people who are going to be battling him. And he says, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Here's an interesting phrase. Their throat is like an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their, here he's helping God again. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. And that's what happens so often when people plot wickedness. In the end, they fall by their own plans and counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Trying to get that perspective and get his faith and get his thing right about the wicked. And then some of my favorite words in all of scripture. 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Did you see the words rejoice and joy and exult? That's David. He had that intense joy in God. And one of the verses I memorized years ago, and I so love, thou dost bless the righteous man, O Lord. Thou dost surround him with favor as a shield. There's that protection, that bubble, that shield, that umbrella, whatever you want to call it. So the first things he says, the first thing he says, and his advice to us is bring it to God early. In my youth, I was anything but an early riser. Somewhere along the line in my middle years, I found myself waking up earlier and earlier. And now today, it is nothing for me to be up at 4.30 or 5. And, and sometimes I come down for that morning time with God, not voluntarily, but because I just can't go back to sleep. Any older people like that here? Would you? Uh, yeah. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. This is the fittest time for intercourse with God. An hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. While the dew, listen to this. While the dew is on the grass, let grace drop upon the soul. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Somewhat less lyrically, Martin Luther if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot go without spending three hours daily in prayer. Now see, busyness chases away prayer, but actually prayer should chase away busyness. 
When you are assured that you have too much to do, increase your time in prayer. And you will begin to see new patterns, new wisdoms, new direction, new, new counsel. Two days ago, in my morning prayer time, I won't go into details on it, but the Lord gave me a, 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 a direction, a spin, a, a faith for the next uh, 12 years of my life. And I just came through prayer. The great Chinese hero, Watchman Nee, who was just a wonderful, I heard somebody sigh there. Watchman Nee spent 52 weeks one time in Fuchao, China, training young believers. And one of his lessons was on early prayer. And he used to say, it is a wonderful time to gather the manna at 6 a.m., but it's a better time to gather the manna at 5 a.m. Yikes. I'm going to tell you about a, a time I've had to take cover recently. I'm going to tell you more as the message proceeds, but I, I joined my wife over in Atlanta at the end of March. I was scheduled to go for eight days, and I had to stay 65 days. Through my wife uh, developing a um, basically an intense sickness around a kidney stone, and a very near-death experience. And uh, it was just wild. But here's what I want to say. I was out there 65 days. I didn't count it up till I got home. But I did not miss my morning devotional time one time in 65 days. And it's not because I'm such a spiritual person. It's because I was so desperate and so in need of God. And if you notice the words here in uh, 1 and 2, there are different experiences in prayer, different gears in prayer, different experiences in prayer, because prayer is flexible, and it meets you right where you are. And maybe you're, you're halfway off track or really off track, or maybe you're doing just fine. But prayer is that thing that, that can focus you again and stoke that relationship with God but here he says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my, what is the next word? Groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. I remember a couple mornings in Atlanta of just crying and crying out to God. Different than I've probably ever experienced as my wife's health was threatened. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king. And my God, that's who we're talking to. I mean, I was around a lot of doctors and a lot of specialists and so on. But there's only one king and one God that I'll pray to. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. My words, my groaning, my cry, my prayer. And notice the verbs that are used here. Where he says, in talking to God, give ear, consider Give attention. God, I am talking to you. You ever had a prayer time like that? Just so intense. In the morning, you hear my voice. And it says, I prepare a sacrifice for you. That's a, an allusion to the Old Testament practice of, of I'm going to give a, a sacrifice to God. So I arrange the wood and I put the sacrifice on the altar and I take great care because I'm doing this for God. And, I'm, and I take great care as well in my life with God in prayer. 
I have a rhythm in prayer. I have a prayer list. Some of you are on that list. Some of you need to be on that list. But prayer, there's just, there's no substitute for it. And it's, it's so hard for so many of us because we're so busy. How many here are busy? Anybody here like that? I remember my middle years, 30s and 40s in uh, Fort Lauderdale when I was uh, assistant pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. I had four daughters in the home. And I just remember every time I'd walk onto the campus of this church, which was running about 20,000 adults. I'm just talking about adults between a weekend and a Wednesday night. And you'd just step onto campus and you'd just take one look at your secretary's face and think, oh boy, because there was phone calls and requests and for weddings and funerals. We had a full-time wedding director and a full-time funeral director at this church. It was so big. And so crazy. And I just remember, if I don't get that time in the morning, I just don't get it. And I learned that, that theme. So you can bring it to God early, verse 3 verses. Then 4 through 6, bring it to God with reality. He's talking here about God and the wicked. And he's, he's, he's just getting real about this whole thing. And here's what you do, God, and here's how I feel about it. And I, I want to encourage you in this way. Be real and precise with God. Now, I know there are people in this room that have financial problems. And so one thing you should be able to do is to come to God in the morning and say, God, I am X dollars in debt. To come to God and say, I am this much exactly in debt and I need your help. I need your wisdom. Come to God in reality, exactly how bad it is. You may even have to do some research before you can come back to God and say, oh, God, God, now I, I do owe $33,622 on credit cards or whatever it might be. What exactly is your diagnosis? What exactly are you struggling with physically? I talk to God periodically about specific things wrong in my body. And I say, Lord, I'm here. I'm here. Come and touch me. Exactly how much should you be saving for retirement and when you realize you're not? You know you should. You're not. Talk to God about that. There's no area in your life that you can't talk to God, whether it's a relationship or a vision question or it's a housing question. We, we all need help in the housing department here, do we not? How God directed me to the house that Denise and I bought is just, it's just a phenomenal story. And it's all just through the promptings and leadings of God, especially with my wife. Are you real with God? Are you talking with God about exactly how you do feel about that wayward child or that stress in the marriage or you know, the nation or whatever it is? Talk to God. In reality, he can take it. And the more that you talk to God like that, the clearer the situation will become. And then you'll begin to get wisdom. You'll be reading the Bible and all of a sudden, hey, there's that wisdom that I need. So early in reality and then with confidence and expectation. Verses 7 and 8. I love how he says here, but I, New American Standard says, but as for me, 
which means no matter what's happening around me, no matter what the wicked are doing, no matter what the humanists and the naturalists and the whatever this are doing, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, enter your house. That word steadfast love, chesed in Hebrew, it's hard to, it's, it's so beautiful, it's hard to even give up a, a translation. Chesed, uh, steadfast love, loving kindness means... Uh, Acceptance, delight, favor. And that's what David says. Because you love me like that, I'm going to come into your house. The only way I'm going to get into your presence, Lord, is because you love me like that. I always say you've never been loved till you've been loved by God. Till you experience the fatherness, the love of God. It's an amazing thing. I enter your house. I bow down toward your holy temple in the reverence for you. So many of us as Christians don't have that reverence for God. So there's the two sides to truth always. There's the fatherhood of God and the love of God, the gentleness of God. And then there's the judgment of God and the strictness of God. I grew up in Pacific Grove, which is why I'm a little weird. A Pagrovian. But uh, I remember when my dad, who was a pastor at St. Mary's by the Sea Episcopal Church, that Redwood Church with the Tiffany windows on Central Avenue, that was my church in the 50s, 60s. And I would go, as a, as a young kid, I wasn't searching for God, I wasn't hungry for God, but I'd sit down in a pew in that beautiful room, and I would feel God. At the time, I didn't realize what it was, but I would feel God. And I could tell that I was supposed to, and my dad, dad taught me this when I was on property in the church, to, to, to have reverence for God. But having a fear for God has set me free. Having a fear for God and a reverence for God, not trying to ever be God, has set me free to let God be God in my life. And I, I still, the few times I go back to that church, sometimes I still have that same I, this is a, a stray comment, but I kind of felt led to mention it. You know, a lot of people have problems with lying. We just don't tell the truth. We shade things. We cut corners. But a reverence for God will help you stop lying. To just tell the truth. And so many people today are abandoning their families and walking away from their responsibilities. The fear of God will cause a dad to stay in the home. Fatherless America, David Blankenhorn, great book. And he says, never in sociological history have so many dads walked out on their families as we see in modern times. But you can have a reverence for God where you don't do that. And notice it said in verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way, what does it say? Straight before me. Are you tired of leading a zigzag life of like making mistakes and overemphasizing and underemphasizing? And, and notice he says the key there, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. There's something about righteousness that is just so straight. And with God, there's a straight, righteous way to walk that will keep you from the zigzagginess of life and keep you from being impulsive and keep you from being not as adventurous as you should be. By your loving kindness, 
we enter this house. Lead me in your righteousness for your name's sake. Which brings me to point four, verse nine and 10. He's talking about the wicked again. He's talking about those people that are, that are after him. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat's an open grave. And he's, as you, as you get the picture here, David is on the one hand, he's, he's wishing that God would bring judgment. But it's obvious that David feels one thing. I want you to listen to this word. When he considers the wicked, I think David feels a little bit vulnerable. Vulnerable. You ever felt like that? Just a little bit threatened? Just a little bit unsure? Just a little bit like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this? Feeling invulnerable. I uh, was on a gang trial jury one time over in Salinas. And man, an education we got about the Norteños and the Serenios. And this, this young Nortenio was on trial. And I remember sitting thinking, what happens if the Nortenios figure out I'm one of the jurors and come and sit outside my house? And I remember my mind going all kinds of directions. I remember being one of the 12 jurors and asking, I would like to see the 38 police special long nose pistol that's a part of the trial. And I remember holding that and just feeling, I'm like in a different world here. And just feeling kind of vulnerable. Maybe you felt like that before. Single moms, people living alone, people on fixed incomes. There's just so many of us that are kind of in that vulnerable place. But where we want to get to is 11 and 12. We want to learn to take cover and enjoy the refuge and the favor of God. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection. That David is a real guy. I mean, you know, this could be just kind of a flowery message from someone who never really saw the battles in, in life. This is, no, this is David. This is, this is the Goliath killer and all of that. And how real his words can be to us. And especially, verse 12, you bless the righteous man, O Lord, you cover him with favor as a shield. It's not like you don't feel the storm, you do, but it doesn't affect you like it could because there's something sheltering you and giving you peace and bathing your mind and giving you wisdom. When I had to take my wife into the hospital on April 4th, and I'm summarize a long story, uh, the receptionist took one look at her and said, oh, and put her on oxygen. Short-circuited the application process, went straight to the uh, ER. Was there two or three hours, and then put her up in a regular room, trying to figure out what was going on. They didn't know what was happening. It turned out to be a kidney stone. And, uh, and then the next day, I think that was April 5th, I noticed in the afternoon there's five doctors in the room. Five separate specialists in the room trying to figure out what's going on with her and stabilize her. And finally, a man who wasn't even supposed to be there that week but was covering for a colleague, a Dr. Reyes, who was the ICU director, looked at Denise and said, you are coming with me. And he just took her up to the ICU. And 
She's not breathing well. It, it was just an awful experience. And uh, that night or the next night, I, I can't remember, uh, they, I, I, I'm in the ICU with her, and I'm uh, standing at, near the bed watching the monitor. You know those dreaded monitors that beep and talk and all that? And then one of them is the temperature. And, one is, and it's at 103, and then her temp goes to 104, and it goes to 105, and they can't find a doctor to get the order for a simple liquid Tylenol. And I thought, what is going to happen here? And then they ultimately just sent us home, kicked us out, said we just need to deal with her. A few hours later, she codes. She's uh, no heartbeat for six minutes. From what I can tell from the medical records, she was resuscitated once or maybe twice. They called me at 12.40 a.m. I have to wake my daughter up with whom I'm staying, and they say, if you want to see your wife, you need to come now. And so uh, Liz and I get in the car and we go and they let us see her a little bit and then they kick us out. And so all night we're sitting out in the waiting room and I start calling my, my four kids, Elizabeth and Carolyn and Lauren and Meredith, and just tell them the situation, my grown kids. And you know, all those kids, including my one from Santa Cruz, were there by 2 p.m. that same day. And here's just the glimpses of the goodness and the grace of God. I'm, I, we sit down in the... Um, cafeteria and all four of my kids are there and I'm sitting with them and I'm starting to lean on them. Never done that quite like that before. And my kids are starting to take care of me and to advise me and dad, here's this and here's that. And we're here. We're not going anywhere. It was an amazing experience, but she's still dreadfully sick. The urologist said, she's too sick for me to remove that um, stone. I can't take her down to the OR. So he just finally decides, okay, she will die within a day or two. He looked at me and he said, she will die within a day or two if I don't take out that stone. So I'm going to bring my machines up here and we're going to do it here in her bed. And later on, this dear Dr. Keith told me, I do this maybe once every five years that I, that I operate like that. And slowly, slowly, she starts getting better. But for 36 hours, I did not know whether I would come back with a wife or not. I called Nate, Pastor Nate, and said, here's what's happening. And again, those little glimpses of goodness, Nate says to me, just stay in today. Stay in today. Don't think about tomorrow. Stay in today. And that was the word of the Lord for me. And the doctor does the does the, an emergency stint around the stone, and long story short, she begins to recover. It was an amazing and long period in the hospital. Five days in the hospital, she does not remember. They took her off uh, five days out of seven when she was under uh, sedation. They, they take off the uh, sedation and it takes her two days to wake up. And they began to be unsure if she was going to ever wake up again. But then one morning, we come in, and she's awake, and she's talking. She has no memory. She's arguing with the, the nurses. What do you mean I was intubated? What do you mean I had dialysis, which she did? What do you mean my kids are all here? And she, she, cause she did, had no idea. It was an, just an amazing experience. If it would have turned out differently, and I would have lost her, I would have still 
been able to take cover in God and say, God, thank you that I don't have her, but you do. But I now have, she was here in the first service, I live with a walking miracle. Dr. Azim, Al-Azim, a pulmonologist, was assessing her the other day, a few days ago. And he's reading the chart, and he stops and he says, he looks at her in the eye and says, you are blessed. And then, and I had not said anything spiritual at all. He reads some more, and he's reading this whole thing from a pulmonologist's viewpoint. And then he stops again and says, ma'am, you are blessed. And then he reads some more, and he's just getting, getting excited. And he looks at her, and he said, you are very blessed. And all she has now, she's, she's still a bit weak. She still has some issues with t- fingers and toes. That's a long story. But it was the superabundance of intercessory prayer that I felt every day. Hundreds of people around the country, some of you, you read the Facebook and, and my friends at Calvary Fort Lauderdale and so on. You can always tell when people are interceding for you because it's like you, your feet are on a, on a conveyor belt and you just know what to do when you have to do it and you don't fall apart. And I now, we now have a miracle attending our church. And I so, thank you. So my point is, you're my church family. I came here 14 years ago from Calvary Fort Lauderdale. This is where I will live. This is where I'll die. Hopefully not soon. And uh, when I retire, it will be here. But see, for you, you, God loves you. Jesus didn't die on the cross to to leave you defenseless and helpless. Jesus died for your sins. He died for your, your life, for you to be able to get through the things that life throws at you. Bring it to God. That's the only way I got through it. When I got Denise on a Delta Airlines flight to come home on June 3rd, I didn't know how we were gonna manage it but she made it home and you'll see her around. So I'd like Daniel to come and begin to play and I'm gonna just pray these five points into your life and into your heart. This so matches what I experienced in my sojourn in Atlanta. I just had to bring it to God. And the stuff I saw and the stories I don't have time to tell you about that Dr. Reyes who would walk into the room and he'd see a positive uh, result on the monitor and he would do a jig he would actually do a little dance and the, the nurses and people that would check on her when they were off shift and the doctors that had called when they didn't have to call and say how's Mrs. Buck one doctor called and said I can't sleep I'm thinking about her how is Mrs. Buck crazy stuff but I want you to be a person who figures out like David how to take cover Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.